Good morning, Chapel Hill. Great to be back with you. Last Wednesday, I returned with 70 folks from the Holy Land, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I've been there 10 times, and it never gets old. And it's like I've seen new things every time I go. I'm looking at the video that we saw there. Uh, Six days ago, I was standing in the grotto of the ancient church in Bethlehem, believed to be the site where Jesus was born. Earlier that day, I was standing in the shepherd's fields, the fields where David would have tended sheep, and the fields where the the shepherds were tending sheep the night that Jesus was born, and the angels uh, arrived to pronounce the greatest news that the world had ever known. So even if you've been there as many times as I have, it's something exciting and new every time. But if you're brand new, as most of our folks were, it is like drinking from a fire hose. It's so overwhelming. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're seeing, which is why you need a great guide. And we had a great guide, a guide that I've used year after year after year. What you don't want is a diva guide. A diva guide is the one who's more impressed with themselves and their presentation than they are in the sites that they're supposed to be showing you. I've had guides like that, where they stand there and they don't even want you to look at anything. They want you to pay complete attention on them. They are the center of attention and they want to do their spiel. That's the most important thing. But if you've got a good guide, what they do is they point out what you're seeing and they say a few things to explain it and then they disappear so that you can experience what it is you have come to see. When we come to the Gospel of John, there's a sense in which we are walking on holy ground. There are so many sacred and soaring sights to discover in the first chapter of John, which is what we're settling into through this Advent season. John chapter 1. One holy sight after another. It can be almost overwhelming. John doesn't start with the Christmas story like Matthew and Luke do. He doesn't start with angels and shepherds and magi. No, John takes us way back to the beginning. In fact, before the beginning. Before the beginning of time, even. He takes us back and we listen to these soaring words. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. That's how John introduces his gospel. In fact, he... He introduces the hero of his gospel in a code name. He doesn't even tell us his name for 16 verses. Instead, he gives us a a name called Logos. It's a a secret name. Logos, which means word in Greek. That's why you hear, in the beginning was the word. What is that talking about? Well, John's being very clever. The word Logos in Greek was used in that time as an idea by philosophers of, of the creative power Behind all of the universe, all of creation, the logos, the word, was their way of talking about the cosmic glue, the force that holds everything together. John was stealing a word from the philosophers, but then he does something amazing with it. And to our astonishment, we discovered that the logos is not an impersonal force, it is not an it. The logos is a person, a person he's going to introduce to us shortly, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And when you realize that you're talking about a person in these opening verses that I just read to you, the soaring, majestic claims that are being made about him, it's almost too much to comprehend. You can hardly conceive what you're looking at. 
But it's a good thing that we have in that same chapter a guide. The guide's name is John the Baptist. You may have read this chapter many times and not realized, but from time to time, in between these soaring description of who the Word is and what He has done, in between these passages, John pops up. Almost like an interruption at first. Until you realize that John is there to help us understand, like a good guide, how spectacular is the person that he is pointing to. The gospel doesn't call John a guide, it calls him a witness, but it's the same thing. The witness, he uses the word six times, the witness is the one who points there and says, look at that, look at that, look at that. And that's what John does in this passage. For months we have been talking about what it means to be a good neighbor, about loving your neighbor, caring for your neighbor, praying for your neighbor, giving attention to your neighbor. I told you a few weeks back, we we don't have ulterior motives for doing this. It's not like we're doing this loving our neighbor so we can drop this secret spiritual bomb on them. No, we love them because Jesus said, love your neighbors. We don't have ulterior motives, but we do have an ultimate motive. The reason that we want to love and care and show kindness and compassion and hospitality to our neighbors and to anyone else is that we would be a guide to Jesus, a pointer to Jesus, a witness to Jesus, the only one who can make sense of our human lives. That is our calling as disciples of Christ. And so for this Advent season, as we kind of settle down into the first chapter of the Gospel of John, We're going to look at what another John, John the Baptist, teaches us about how to be a good guide, a witness, and not a diva witness. The thing about being a Christian weaver, diva guide, is that it's hard. It means you've got to have all the answers. You've got to be the center of attention all of the time. You've got to impress everyone with how spiritual you are. John, though, in each of his brief appearances, he takes the pressure off of us, and he teaches us that the secret to being a great spiritual guide is to point away from yourself and to point to Jesus. Last week we heard about that. Pastor Ellis preached on the first section that I just read. That He talked about the fact that the word, this, this Jesus, is actually the light of life. And then John pops up and says, by the way, I'm not the light. He is the light. I am not the light. I'm not the one that has all the answers. I'm not the one that can solve the confusion of the world. He's the one that can do that. And we were reminded that for us, then we don't have to be the light. We don't have to have the answers. We have to be the, the moon to the sun that is Jesus. Simply rest in his presence and be a reflection of his light into the lives of others. When we admit, I am not the light, it takes great pressure off of us of having to have all of the spiritual answers. So I am not the light, John says. And then we come to the second little moment, the second lesson that John gives to us. He says, and I am not first. I am not the light, and I am not first. Pay attention, because it's a very short little verse, and it is tucked in, frankly, under the shadow of one of the most overwhelming and magnificent verses that you will find in all of the Bible. John 1, 14. I'll give you a hint. John 1, 14 is John's equivalent of the Christmas Story. He wraps all of the shepherds, angels, magi, Bethlehem, King Herod, all of it into one little verse. And here's how it goes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then here comes John. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's back up a little bit. As I said, the first few verses of this chapter, of this gospel, they make incredible claims about this person that the writer calls the Logos, the Word. We are told that the Word is God. That's incredible. That He is eternal, outside of time. That He is the creator of all things. All of those are pretty hard to get your head wrapped around. Pretty incredible, incomprehensible claims. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator of all things. But he ain't seen nothing yet because now in verse 14 suddenly comes the punchline of this entire passage and really the punchline of John's entire gospel. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As I said, this is the Christmas story in one verse. The Logos, the divine, eternal creator of the universe, put on human flesh, if you can imagine, and came a-calling. When we look upon his face, we're gazing upon the face of God. In the Old Testament, we are told that the, the face of God could not be gazed upon. In fact, if you did you would die. The glory of God was too much to bear for humanity. But somehow, when God comes to us in human form, in the person of Jesus, of Nazareth, we're able to look at his face, at the face of God, and not only do not die, we are filled with his glory, and we live to tell the story about it. So while our minds are swirling about this stuff, he has just said, this incredible Logos has come and put on human flesh. Suddenly John pops back up again with his second little interruption, his explanation. We read that John bore witness about this Logos, this one who became flesh, and he cried out, this is the one I spoke about. I said, he who comes after me actually ranks before me because he was before me. What does he mean by that? In order to understand this cryptic little comment, you need to understand something about John the Baptist. He was the religious rock star of his time. I mean, he was an icon. He was the first prophet to have spoken to the people of God in 400 years. After the prophet Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, God went silent. He clammed up. For 400 years, God didn't say a word, and the people longed to hear from him. They longed for a word from the Lord, but they didn't get it. Maybe God was just fed up with their idolatry. Maybe God was just fed up with their disobedience. But like sometimes parents do, he just went silent. They got the silent treatment. A long time, 400 years. And then suddenly, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he hit strong. He was the first prophet to speak in 400 years, and we are told that crowds flocked to see him. My real estate friends will tell you that the key to a real estate, the key to business is location, location, location. John must have missed the memo because he set up shop out in the middle of nowhere and yet the crowds kept coming. They listened, they repented, they were baptized. Even the religious leaders were coming to be baptized by John. Even the Roman soldiers, the occupiers were being coming to be baptized by John. 
Even his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, came to be baptized by John. When John saw him, he said, No way, Jose! I'm not going to do this! I'm not going to be baptizing you! You ought to baptize me! Jesus said, Nope, this is the way we're going to do it. And so when Jesus went under those baptismal waters at the hand of John, he was honoring him and validating the ministry of this first prophet in four centuries, the one who had come to prepare the way for him. In fact, Jesus would later say of this John the Baptist, he is the greatest man ever born of woman. Think of that. In the sports world, you know the expression goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time? That's what he's saying about John. He's saying he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. You say, really? Greater than Abraham? Yep. Greater than Moses? Yep. Greater than Elijah? Yep. How about King David, the apple of God's heart? Yep, greater than him. John the Baptist was the greatest. And yet John pipes up and says, well, there is someone who's greater. That's what he means when he said that even though Jesus was born after him, he was before him. He ranked higher than he did. In other words, John was saying in that little cryptic comment, despite what you think of me, despite of my rock star status... I am not first. Jesus is first. I'm not preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. I'm not in charge. Jesus is in charge. And later on, he reinforces this when he says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what John is teaching us here is if you want to be an effective guide to Jesus, if you want to be a witness for Jesus, you must learn to decrease. You must make less of yourself. Someone once decided to define Christian discipleship this way, as downward mobility. Isn't that good? We normally talk about upward mobility, making more and more and more of ourselves. But John says, nope, it's downward mobility, making less and less and less of yourself. Which goes against our instincts, doesn't it? Because we want to be important. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. We want to be in the spotlight. We want to be recognized. And John says, no, step back. Step back. And let the one who belongs get there. I'll tell you what this is speaking to. It's speaking to the lordship of Jesus. The declaration that Jesus is preeminent over all. The original creed of the Christian church was very simple. The early Christian church, they had the same creed. Three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Say it. Jesus is Lord. Interestingly, it was not Jesus is Savior. The creed of the church is Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. He's in command. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is first. Now, I don't know how American Christianity came up with this idea, but we have developed a notion that the lordship of Jesus is like graduate school. Your starting level is Jesus as Savior. I've heard people talk like this. Yeah, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Who wouldn't? Take away all my sins. Clean me up. Forgive me for every bad thing I've done. Make me ready to go to heaven. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah, I'll take Jesus as Savior. But then they say, but I'm not quite ready to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'm going to hold off on that for a while. Until I've lived the life I want to live. 
Until I've spent my money the way I want to spend it. Until I've had the kind of relationships that I want to have. I'll just put off that lordship thing until then. That is exactly what Constantine, the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire, did. Although he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, effective 323, how mad, that's a long time ago, Constantine was not baptized until his deathbed. Why? Because he was the emperor. He liked being the emperor, and he didn't want anyone else to be the emperor of his life. Not even Jesus. But it doesn't work that way, beloved. It never has. Only Jesus as Lord can be Jesus your Savior. They go together. Only when we declare that Jesus is first, Jesus is in charge, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is preeminent, do we experience the salvation of Jesus in our life. It's not Jesus as Savior now and Jesus as Lord someday. It's a package deal. As I look back over my ministry life, I think the greatest delusion of my ministry life was the idea that I was in charge. That everything depended upon me. That I was in control of everything. And over the years, the Lord has beaten that delusion out of me, thank God. And may I tell you that when you finally come to realize what a delusion this is, when you finally come to realize that Jesus is in control, it is incredible relief. I was in charge of 70 people in Israel. It meant every time someone was sick, that was my responsibility. It meant when someone got lost in the old city of Jerusalem, it was my responsibility to find her. It meant when someone got stopped in the security line at Frankfurt Airport and barely got through in time to make their flight to SeaTac. That was my responsibility. I'm telling you, when we landed at SeaTac and I got my bags and I got in the car and headed home, I was so relieved not to be in charge anymore. If you want to be an effective witness for Jesus, John would say then, remember your place. Remember your place. You are not first. Jesus is first. You're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. You're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Can you say that about your own life? Not that you're perfect. Not that you ever don't ever rebel. Not that you don't ever try to have your own way. But that in your heart of heart, you own Jesus as the boss of your life. And that when you hear him, you want to be obedient to whatever it is he tells you to do. Beloved, I'm telling you, that is what it means to be a Christian and a witness for Christ. And nothing less. We're reminded of that when we come to this meal. When Jesus gathered his friends together, that night we call the Last Supper... He had the audacity to say, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Wait a second. God makes covenant with his people. How can you make a covenant? Because I'm God. And I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And so when we receive this meal, this new covenant, this new testament, it is a way for us to renew our commitment to the preeminence, to the sovereignty, to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. And so today I want to ask you to do something a little different when you come up to receive these elements. When you receive the bread and you dip it in the juice and you partake of it, when you're done doing that, 
I invite you, if this is true for you, not just if they're words, but if it's true for you, if it's the longing of your heart, I invite you as you take to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And not just Jesus is my Lord. This is an affirmation of something much greater. He's not just your Lord. He is the Lord of everything, whether we acknowledge it or not. But it might be a good idea from time to time if we remind ourselves of that fact. Jesus is Lord. When you receive this meal today, may your parting words be, Jesus is Lord. Let's pronounce that together. Jesus is Lord. I invite you to come to this meal as a reminder of what Christ has done for you. And so once again, I share with you what Jesus shared with his disciples so many years ago. In that upper room with his dearest friends, he sat down and he took bread, plain old bread, but he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and saying, this bread is my body. I'm going to be broken for you. My body's going to be torn, shredded for you. And every time you eat this in the future, I want you to remember the sacrifice I made, the price I paid. This is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup, just wine, plain old wine. They drank it all the time. But this time he did something different. He said, every time you drink this cup now, I want you to remember that I'm going to pour out my blood. In the next few hours, I'm going to be shedding my blood for you. And this blood is going to be a covering of your sin. This blood is going to be a new testament, a new covenant that will change everything forever about your relationship with God. He says, as long as you eat this bread, every time you do it, and every time you drink this cup, you're going to proclaim my death until I come back for you. And so that's what we do again today. In the season of Advent, when we not only remember the first coming of Jesus, but we look forward to the second coming of Christ, we share in this meal. And in so doing, we declare him Savior, yes, but most of all, we declare him Lord of all. So Holy Spirit, would you take these common elements and set them aside for a a very precious purpose, that which the Son intended. Would you meet us in the simple sharing of this meal as we take this wafer and dip it into the juice and partake of it? Would you remind us of the price paid that we might be the chosen, the children, the beloved of our Heavenly Father? And in our gratitude, may we humble ourselves once again, perhaps as we've never done before, bow our knee to to you and own you as the only Lord, the only sovereign, the only preeminent one over all. And yet you loved us, which will forever be astounding. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.